Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. I'm Adam Levine. Katie's on assignment. Joe and I are thrilled today to be joined by Washington wise man Ron Klain. Ron is a distinguished attorney and policymaker who began his career as a Supreme Court clerk for Justice Byron White. Ron has served in senior positions at the White House, the Department of Justice, and on Capitol Hill. He is a veteran of seven, yes, seven presidential campaigns. And in October of 2014, he was appointed by President Obama to serve as the United States Ebola Response Coordinator. Ron Klain, welcome to Words Matter. Thank you so much. Great to be here. In the interest of full disclosure, Ron and I have known each other for quite a long time, but I, I want to go way back here. Let's which do it. Is, talk about the first campaign you ran. Well, the first campaign I ran uh, was uh, my wife's campaign. Yeah. So um, uh, Joe and I went to Georgetown together, and my wife uh, was active in student government in Georgetown. Uh, we were then not married, of course. We were dating. And she ran for student uh, pres- president of the student government of Georgetown, and I was her campaign manager. So, you know, many years later, um, when Ron and I started working together, I put two and two together because one of my roommates was student body president the year before. So I knew of Monica and had had met her a couple of times. And uh, I was like, here's this high powered guy. But I knew him when he was running important campaigns. Did she win? She did win. Of course she won. Of course she she won. won. She did win. I'm I'm going to start by uh, flattering you and, you know, you know me well enough to know that I don't really flatter people. I kind of view Washington as uh, there are two types of people. There are people who are policy experts that go down into the weeds and really know how government works and how government programs work. They know how the law works. And then there's people who are political operatives and communications. And there's very few that do both and do both equally well. And on the Democratic side, I can only think of two, which is um, John Podesta and Ron Klain, who's sitting here with us. Talk a little bit about you know, how you balance that, uh, because it really is, from my perspective, um, you know, having been around a long time, it's really a unique talent. We were very nice to say that, and it's always incredibly flattering to be compared to John in any way, shape, or form. Um, you know, For me, I think one thing John and I both have in common is we spent a lot of our early careers on Capitol Hill. And I often tell young people, I teach uh, undergraduates at Georgetown, and I often tell young people that Capitol Hill is a great place to get started in your career because everyone wants to go work at the White House. Everyone wants to work at the White House. Everyone wants to work at the White House. But I think in the early phases of your career, the Hill is a great place to be because on the Hill, you have to learn how to do a little bit of everything. Uh, the offices are small enough. Even the largest offices are small enough that everyone in the office wears multiple hats. And you see the intersection of policy and communications and politics very up close and very immediate as a member is trying to decide how to vote on something, what bills to introduce, what to say in a hearing, so on and so forth. And so for me, I think that experience uh, when I finished college and, again, right when I finished law school, of working on Capitol Hill really played a big part in how I think about how all these different elements of uh, government and politics are integrated. So I, I asked that question there because I think what's going to be really uh, valuable for our listeners over the next half hour or so is the fact that you have a perspective, multiple perspectives on on, on every issue. But I'm going to start with something we, you and I talked about a couple of weeks ago, which is a little bit of a change in the, the Ron Klain persona. You know, Ron's a very uh, bright, serious guy. Uh, who in the last two years has become a little more outspoken. And I've always known you to be political, but not partisan. And partisan is not a bad word. Um, A lot of people think it is. Talk a little bit about um, why you've chosen to speak out in the way you have uh, over the last couple of years. Like a lot of people, I woke up the day after Election Day 2016 perplexed about what had happened both in terms of the the result itself, Secretary Clinton losing, what it said about our country, that uh, someone like Donald Trump could get elected president, and um, and where we were at this moment in history. And I really decided that um, it was a time for people to speak out. It was a time for people not to be cautious and not to be careful and not to choose their words overly carefully, but to really um, give voice to what they were feeling and what they were thinking. And um, I understood there'd be consequences. I understood that uh, it might mean that uh, 
if I ever was in law practice, certain people wouldn't want to hire me as a lawyer. I might alienate some people and alienate some uh, friends or whatever. But um, it just felt like this was the moment to really um, be outspoken and to uh, and to the extent that I had any kind of stature or platform or whatever uh, to put it to use uh, in what I think is the most important political fight of our lives which is trying to make sure that Donald Trump doesn't become a two-term president, trying to make sure that the political sentiments he's un- unlocked and unleashed in the country are checked and reversed. I mean, have we all learned a little bit, though, from Trump? Because you know, some of this is about um, – it's not saying we're right for these four policy reasons. It's about, in a very cluttered media environment, catching people's attention. I, you know, Jeremy Bash, who's a mutual friend – said, and I, I, I'm not going to get the tweet right, but he said you had the single funniest tweet of the last two years when Flynn resigned. It was something like, you know, Flynn Flammery or yeah. something. And do you think about how I need to reach people both on an intellectual level, on a, uh, you know, using humor or needling a little bit? I do think it's important to, to understand that you have to get to people where they are. And so for me, that's Twitter. In the years, I was on Twitter for years before the 2016 election. My tweets were fairly bland and kind of substantive or whatever. And I had like 4,000 followers on Election Day 2016. And now I'm nearing 100,000. And it comes from, you know, being acerbic and um, and calling out like it is. That's what people I think we need to do. I think we need to uh, reach people where they are. I also was not much of a cable TV chatterer before 2016. And now – I'm a frequent guest. This is really an all-hands moment for our democracy. And I, I don't think that we can spare any tool or any way to try to get people engaged and focused uh, and active, make them aware of the stakes, and try to get them involved and aroused. Ron, Joe took you back um, to you, the first campaign you managed. I want to take you back even a little further than that. Yeah. Um, in your home state of Indiana – yeah. You witnessed a campaign up close and personal as a seven-year-old. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about that and what it gave you in terms of understanding the power of words spoken from politicians. Yeah. So um, I didn't grow up in a political household. My father uh, ran the family plumbing supply business. My mother was a travel agent. Uh, neither was particularly active in politics. And in 1968, I was seven years old and uh, the 1968 campaign was raging and the Indiana primary was where Robert F. Kennedy decided to make a big stand in 1968. And uh, his basic mode of campaign event, way, way before Bill Clinton was doing town halls, was to do these things where they'd bring in particular constituencies and he'd do a Q&A with them. And then they'd film it and they were making them into campaign ads. And they decided to do one for small business people in Indianapolis. And some advanced person, for a lot of different reasons I don't really understand, pick my father's business as the place to stage this event. I always tell advanced people when they're doing these kind of, quote, unquote, real people events, that they make choices that change people's lives. And it certainly changed mine. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy came in March of 1968 and uh, did this town hallish kind of thing at my father's business. And I got to meet him and really was enraptured by him, by the whole thing. Uh, by just the whole spectacle of a presidential campaign at my dad's plumbing supply warehouse and just really fascinated. Uh, A month later, April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King was assassinated. Robert F. Kennedy came to Indianapolis that night and announced to a crowd in a park where he was supposed to speak that uh, Martin Luther King had been killed uh, and gave an extemporaneous speech that's one of the most beautiful speeches ever given in American public life. And a lot of that is actually engraved at his grave site here at Arlington Cemetery. Could you lower those signs, please? I have some very sad news for all of you, and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, 
it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another. Feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country. Dedicate ourselves to what the Greeks wrote so many years ago, to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. Let us dedicate ourselves to that and say a prayer for our country and for our people. Thank you very much. And uh, that night, April 4th, uh, cities all over this country burned, inner cities all over the country burned, but not in Indianapolis, Indiana, because of Robert F. Kennedy's speech. It was one of the few major cities that didn't have any uh, rioting or violence that night. My father's business was in the inner city. It's one of the reasons why they picked it for for the Kennedy event the month before. And uh, his business would have been one that surely burned to the ground had there been the kind of violence in Indianapolis that there were in other cities. And so it was a really powerful lesson to me at a very early age that words do matter. And that uh, Senator Kennedy's words that night made a big difference to Indianapolis, created a what uh, he later called a ripple of hope, uh, that there could be change, it could be progress. Obviously, that ripple of hope was extinguished just two months later when he was killed. Uh, but it certainly really changed the direction of my life. So unfortunately, we have to move from the beauty of Robert Kennedy's words uh, to the reality of Donald Trump. Democrats are in two camps. Uh, one camp says, we've got to impeach him now. We've got to not only hold him accountable, we need to punish Donald Trump. And the other camp is, take it slow. Impeachment is a very risky political thing. Uh, let's do what we can to investigate. So let's start by saying, which camp is Ron Klain in? So um, I, I, I'm – And you can reject the premise of the, the – I don't reject the premise. I just think what's happening in real time is that the two camps are really coming together very quickly because of the actions of President Trump and his administration. So I think – look, I think Speaker Pelosi, Adam Schiff, Jerry Nadler, the other people who were the architects of the strategy, I think set this up in the right way, which was hey, let's let's try to investigate. Let's try to get to the bottom of these things. Uh, these questions, the remaining questions from the Mueller report, but all the questions outside the Mueller report about emoluments, money from foreign governments, all the other kinds of corruption and wrongdoing. Let's look into all this and get to the bottom of it, and then we'll make a decision about what the appropriate action is. And Trump has made a decision to just stonewall, to just simply say, I'm not going to cooperate, pound sand, it's over. The full Nixon. The full Nixon. Uh, Nixon plus even, really. And and I think that means that difference among Democrats between impeach now or investigate and impeach is really coming to a crescendo very, very quickly and very, very soon. I think uh, you're going to find that all Democrats are going to agree that some kind of impeachment-like proceeding, some track that leads us there, is going to have to be started to get the information and get the documents to conduct the investigation. Uh, this is Trump's choice, not Congress's choice. It's the path he has chosen. Now, whether or not he has chosen it, as some people think, uh, deliberately because he wants to be impeached, whether or not he's chosen it, whether or not he's just blundered into it, you know, no way to know whether it's kind of bluster or blunder, bluffing, you know, whatever it is. But I think he has put himself uh, – Speaker Pelosi the other day used the phrase self-impeachment, mm-hmm. uh, which kind of got a bunch of buzz around it. But, as, but I, and seen as movement towards tw- right. impeachment, making it – but, but I think that whether you agree with that phrase or not, I think the sentiment it re- reflects is correct, which is, you know, this is his choice. He has chosen the path uh, that's going to result ultimately in the House having no choice, really, but to be launched into impeachment proceedings. So in addition to wanting to flatter you, I, I did want to establish the fact that you do wear a number of these hats. So both politically and legally and with your experience in the executive branch and on the Hill, talk a little bit about the issues here, the constitutional issues. You know, is this a constitutional crisis? Is it a political crisis? Is it a hybrid? What the judicial remedies are. If you were sitting in the White House, how would you approach this if you're sitting on Capitol Hill? Explain to the listeners here what's what's really going to happen and what's at stake. So look, I don't think it's a constitutional crisis. I think it's kind of asymmetrical constitutional warfare in the sense that the Democrats are playing by the rules. They're 
you know, they've issued subpoenas for certain things. Uh, they obviously uh, tried to compel the Justice Department to turn over the Mueller report unredacted. Uh, they've refused to do that. Uh, they asked, they d- demanded the testimony of the attorney general. He refused to appear. They've now held him in contempt as a result of that. They're going through all these processes. And, um, and that's not a constitutional crisis. That's the application of constitutional remedies and constitutional procedures on the one side. On the other side, what Donald Trump appears to be saying, and we're going to see this play out in the next week or two, is I don't really care. They're not really making a constitutional argument about their right to resist. They're just basically saying, pound sand, F off. We're just not going to respond. To hell with you. You can't make us. And it's, it's a little like a you know a second grade fight where someone says, make me and I'll make you. you know, right, make exactly. Me. And including uh, this apparent effort now that uh, Donald Trump Jr. just simply will refuse to comply with a subpoena for his testimony before the Senate Intelligence Committee. And you mean the Fredo privilege the Fredo doesn't privilege, really yeah. exist? You know, a constitutional crisis is when the two the two branches disagree about what the Constitution requires, and the method of resolving that is unclear. That's not what this is. Uh, one side is following a series of constitutional proceedings. The other side just says, we don't really care. We're not playing. We're not going to follow any of these rules. We're just going to hunker down and tell you to F off. We're going to see now. Will the House take these matters to court uh, as they have the opportunity to on a number of different issues, whether it's Secretary Mnuchin's refusal to turn over the tax return pursuant to a clear statute that requires that or some kind of effort on the contempt proceeding against Barr or other subpoenas that aren't being uh, followed and the set aside of uh, Trump Jr. refuses to appear? Will they go to court to try to enforce some of these things? Will they re-exercise a long dormant pl- uh, power, their uh, kind of inherent contempt power, which the House used to use prior to 1930 to avoid the courts and actually try cases of contempt themselves, something they really haven't done in 90 years? Will they go back to that? But what's really fascinating and what really we're going to see play out soon is this battle between one side using a bunch of constitutional tools and the other side just saying, basically, we think we have the votes lined up among Republicans. We think we've got our base lined up behind us. We just don't really care. We're just not going to participate. As a Hill Democrat, you know, if you're in the, the Speaker's office, do you have any confidence that, that, the, that the third branch of government can be useful in a timely way? I do. I think people tend to overestimate how long the courts take. I think in cases like this, the courts can act very quickly. And I think that uh, some effort to seek relief on some of these things in the courts is definitely the right thing to do. But again, here we come back to impeachment because there is a relatively recent case, surprisingly recent case out of the D.C. Circuit, which suggests that the executive privilege is weaker in impeachment proceeding than it is in other kinds of congressional proceedings. And so I think there are uh, arguments on the merits, arguments in terms of getting access to this material information more quickly, that counsels uh, moving into some kind of impeachment proceeding. And um, so I think if the Democrats want to have a successful judicial strategy, a successful litigation strategy, that may push them uh, for another reason into impeachment as an answer. One of the things Joe mentioned is that Donald Trump thinks he has the votes lined up in Congress, but he also thinks he has the votes lined up in the Supreme Court. Now, the politicization of the judiciary is something that we're seeing through this period, but you kind of lived it firsthand. Yeah. You, you were on the staff of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and you shepherded the nomination of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which I think was 96 to 3. three. 96 yeah. to 3, yeah. And then we saw four years later, uh, the Supreme Court, 9-0 saying the Paula Jones case, two justices that President Clinton had appointed himself voted against presidential prerogative in that case. And then three years after that, we see Bush versus Gore. That was the same court that decided the 9-0 Paula Jones case. Talk a little bit about how it devolved in that eight-year period and then in the 16, 17 years plus how it's it's, uh, gotten even worse. Yeah, I do think that a lot of what we're seeing today started with Bush v. Gore. I think kind of Bush v. Gore in some ways is the original sin of this. And, and before you go further, you were a pretty central player in I, I was, on, on, I the, was, on the Gore side. I, so. Yes, I was a general counsel for Vice President Gore and ran his recount uh, committee in 2000, spent 36 days in Florida 
litigating uh, 33 different cases about the recount, uh, including ultimately Bush v. Gore. And I, I do think Bush v. Gore is an original sin that has spawned this kind of constitutional warfare that we have seen in the 19 years uh, since then, because it really stripped away the idea uh, that the court was apolitical and was a highly partisan decision. It was an institutional failure by the court and particularly by Chief Justice Rehnquist um, to uh, find a way to resolve that difficult dispute in some way that didn't seem really political. Five justices appointed by Republicans voted to make George Bush president. The other four justices voted uh, not to stop the recount in Florida. And I think that really led to really heightened the political dimension of the court. It led to then more politicization of the Supreme Court nomination process. You know, we, we in the century before Bush v. Gore, the number of Supreme Court nominations that got 30 or more no votes, you could count on one hand in a century. And every single nomination uh, since Bush v. Gore has had that kind of partisan division. Uh, because I think it's impossible for Democrats or Republicans to ignore the political consequences of these nominations, given what happened in Bush v. Gore. And that kind of politicization then led to the kind of complete constitutional breakdown we had with the nomination of Merrick Garland, the Senate's refusal to even give him a hearing, even to consider his nomination, which is now leading some Democrats to argue we should add members of the Supreme Court if we get back uh, into a majority in the Senate and in the White House after the 2020 elections. Uh, and, you know, who knows where we go from there. We're in a horrible, horrible dynamic as as a result of Bush v. Gore. Is he counting right on those votes today in the Supreme Court? I mean, what is, again, I, I know we can never well, say know, what the court's going to say. But let me, and let me, let me add to that because you mentioned you, you singled out uh, Rehnquist. What hopes do you have that Chief Justice Roberts will act differently? Right. You know, I think that there's some view that uh, Chief Justice Roberts has a more institutional view of the court, a desire to protect the court from um, this kind of institutional corrosion that Rehnquist seemed to be blind to in Bush v. Gore. And, you know, we've seen that in a few cases, right? Obviously, most significantly in the court's decision to uphold the Affordable Care Act on a 5-4 to four vote where Chief Justice Roberts was one of the five voting to uphold the Affordable Care Act. But whether what will happen when push comes to shove? What will happen when we get a, a dispute about Donald Trump's presidency, when we get to a uh, perhaps a dispute after the 2020 election? Uh, we don't know. And I think that in general, I think the pattern with Roberts has been to send kind of accommodationist signals on minor cases and then vote with the Republicans on the major cases, uh, the Affordable Care Act being a notable exception to that. But what happens going forward now, now that he has this very hard, consolidated phalanx of four uh, justices, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, it's really hard to know. Let me shift gears a little bit here. Uh, the substantive debate, whether it be politics or law, centers on the Mueller report. And you were critical of Mueller for the punt, not nearly as critical as David Kendall was in the same Washington Post pages. But what did he miss? And and, and in fairness, what did he get right? I want to be clear. I think Robert Mueller is a, a patriot and took this on and, and endured abuse and difficulties that very few people could deal with and dealt with them with, with professionalism. And there's a, a lot of good work in that report by Bob Mueller and his people. I do think there are a few big misses, though. The biggest one is his failure to get Donald Trump under oath. And, and look, I understand from a purely prosecutorial perspective, what he says in the report is, would have been hard to get him under oath, would have had to fight over that, would have had to take him to court. Uh, and I had a lot of evidence from other people, and I kind of was able to know what went on without having to do that. And my criticism of that is I think it really fails to appreciate the special role of a special counsel. This wasn't just a conventional criminal investigation. This was an inquiry into whether or not to win the presidency, the president of the United States had taken unlawful help from a foreign adversary. And the American people deserve to have a sworn answer from the president to that question. And to the other questions that are raised in that report, that's the kind of the special duty and special burden of this office. Now, we know uh, very famously Ken Starr got Bill Clinton under oath. We know that of, uh, that in the investigation of 9-11 and other things, 
uh, George Bush answered questions under penalty of perjury. And I think that uh, the same should have been required here given the stakes. I also think there were a few specific decisions in the Mueller report that I disagree with. And specifically, most importantly, his decision not to prosecute Donald Jr. for soliciting foreign help when he took the Trump Tower meeting and when he interacted with the folks from WikiLeaks. Uh, That decision, I think, is very poorly explained in the Mueller report. And I don't think the explanation really holds up Uh, that essentially kind of uh, foreign assistance isn't really – uh, an illegal campaign contribution because you can't really put a dollar value on it. It'd be hard to prove what it was worth. And maybe he has like a First Amendment right to solicit it. This is really Citizens United for foreign assistance. And we see the consequences already. For President Trump, Rudy Giuliani are out there saying, we're going to go get help from the Ukraine in the 2020 election because Bob Mueller said that asking for this kind of help from Russia wasn't prosecutable. And so I guess it's legal. And so we're going to go do the same thing in 2020. And uh, you know, I think that's just a big mistake that Mueller made. Rudy Giuliani has really redefined the norms in politics. It's not whether it's right or wrong. And it's not even whether it's a crime or not. It's a a crime that you're more than likely to be convicted on. Correct. Yeah, uh, that, that, which is perfect for the amoral White House. Which, and he's the president's personal. I mean, the absurdity of Rudy Giuliani sending out a press release basically to say, "I'm going to go to a foreign power on behalf of the president to do this." It's just you know, you every once in a while it's, you have to stop and think. You know, there are no more norms. This is the Trump yeah. era. As I've said to our listeners on this podcast several times, I worked closely when I worked in the Bush White House on a couple of projects with the FBI, with Director Mueller. And so when I when your op-ed popped up in my inbox, I, I didn't want to agree with you. But I have to say, after reading it, I agreed with everything you said. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and you mentioned him not prosecuting Donald Trump, which I agree both on the failure to value, be able to uh, put a valuation on the information and then on the coordination with WikiLeaks, both of which you point out. One thing that you didn't point out that I'd be interested to know what you thought is not only did he not prosecute him, he didn't even, as far as we know, call him for the grand jury. Talk about why and is this emblematic? And one of the things that convinced me that you were right was I think that one of if Bob Mueller has flaws and we all do, he's overly cautious. And if Bob Mueller, having looked at his testimony before the Senate Intelligence Committee, didn't think he'd commit perjury, why is the Senate Intelligence Committee basically giving him one more do-over? All fair questions. To the broader question about Mueller's caution, he's in a very hard position. It kind of goes back to something I said earlier about asymmetrical constitutional warfare. And this general moment we're at in Washington and in, in political life, which is you, you have one side, the Trump side, just shredding all the rules and basically taking the standard that Joe alluded to a minute ago, which is basically, if you're not going to put me in jail for it, I'm going to do it. You know, whether that's getting foreign assistance or refusing to comply with subpoenas, refusing to comply with uh, orders to testify, whatever. Their position is basically like, you know what, we're going to do what we want and we don't really care if it is violative of norms or violative of rules or even violative of laws unless you're going to come and throw me in jail. And you have that. And then you have a bunch of people over here who are trying to play by some kind of set of rules. And that asymmetry is the fundamental dilemma we have in our politics right now because it leaves people like Robert Mueller, a Republican, or like Nancy Pelosi, a Democrat, or you know all the other people on the Hill with this question of whether or not they continue to play by the rules or whether or not they fight fire with fire. And the, the, the past two years has just made me think a thousand times of that scene in uh, The Untouchables where you know Sean Connery uh, says to Kevin Costner basically, look, you want to take on the mob in Chicago – uh, you know, this is how you have to do it. What uh, are you prepared to do? What are you prepared to do? You know, they send one of yours to the hospital. You send one of theirs to the morgue, so on and so forth. And this horrible choice between ends and means and all these things, we're seeing that play out in real life right now. And I think it's a horrible dilemma. And I think that's kind of the dilemma Mueller faced. And I think he chose to not only play within the rules, but as he often does, stay five steps on this side of the line. And as a result, I do think the Trump family got the best of him on several points in that report. I think that's right. 
put your policy hat on uh, for a second. If uh, the calendar was different and the Russians were interfering in the midterms in 2014 and President Obama called you and said, I need you to be my foreign interference election czar, how would you approach that? And the, the, the question is based in the most outrageous part of all of this, which is we've been attacked and the president of the United States, who benefited from the tax, has basically been unwilling to not only acknowledge it, but to do anything about it. What resources should the government have harnessed or marshaled to take this on? If you think about what happened in 2016, the Obama administration, quite understandably, was really focused on one question above all else, which was, were the Russians going to be able to interfere with our election machinery? Were they going to be able to change voting registrations, change vote totals? And they were very, very focused on preventing that and stopping that. And I think they uh, deployed both direct diplomacy with the Russians and a lot of work at Homeland Security to try to make sure that didn't happen. And I remember talking to my former colleagues in the White House and in the administration right after the election and them kind of being proud of the fact that while there had been this threat that the Russians were going to do it, we had gotten through the elections and the Russians hadn't uh, successfully uh, interfered with the vote totals or interfered with the election mechanics. And in the meantime, the Russians were kind of coming in over the top and underneath. Uh, they weren't, in the end, as far as we know, changing any vote totals in 2016. What they were doing was was two things. One, they were stealing all these emails through WikiLeaks, John Podesta's emails, others, DNC emails, D, uh, SCC emails, and uh, putting them out in a very clever and creative way. And then la- launching a very elaborate social media campaign to try to further divide the American people and rally uh, opposition to Secretary Clinton. Part of this is really understanding what was the threat. And I think we saw the threat in a certain way on the run up to 2016. And in the meantime, the threat was in a very, very different place. It wound up being in uh, uh, not so much in changing vote totals, but changing voters' minds and really poisoning our politics. The scary thing is that not only does that continue. But going back to a completely different thing that may seem unrelated, but I want to loop back around, is you know my experience in uh, with, with the Ebola response. We saw on the ground in West Africa in 2014 and 2015 clear signs that the Russians were spreading misinformation in West Africa in a way that really hampered the Ebola response. Uh, spreading misinformation that the, the Ebola responders were actually spreading the disease and really trying to kind of mess with what we were doing on the ground there. Now, today, for example, the Russians are doing the same thing. There's evidence that their uh, social media arms are spreading the anti-vaccine movement in the United States and really giving fuel and fire to the people who are trying to discourage people from vaccinating their children. We political people are very focused on how the Russians are messing with our politics, but what they're really doing is messing with our country. And whether that's in politics or public health or every other way, they have found a low-cost, low-risk way to mess up American life. And we really have to get a grip on what that is, not just for electoral purposes and political purposes, but because if they succeed in persuading more and more Americans not to vaccinate their kids and vaccination rates fall, we're going to see more things like this measles uh, outbreak we're seeing in different pockets of the country and and even worse. And so this is just a a, a kind of an across-the-board problem we have to tackle. There were people who uh, were skeptical when uh, President Obama named you as the uh, Ebola czar. That, that would be an understatement. Yeah, um, I was being nice. Um, you know, what, is, what, is, what does Ron Klain know about public health? And, but um, I think he was proven right by the fact that that's someone who's able to marshal all of the assets of the U.S. government, which is a political uh, act in and of itself, even if it's a public health issue. And I guess what I'm trying to get at is we do need that. Um, as far as the Russians. And let's get past the fact that Trump isn't going to do it. But is it possible with a president um, who believes protecting our democracy is important? Is it possible to have a an Ebola-like response where every part of our government is on alert and is makes this a priority? Yeah. Look, I think it is possible to do that. And I think that we also should give credit to the fact that, that notwithstanding Trump – 
and his closest advisors, there are still many, many great public servants working in DHS, working at DOD, working in other places, who are trying to counter this Russian influence in our society and trying to counter these Russian efforts to disrupt our political process and our public life. It's not that this work isn't going on, but what it lacks is leadership and commitment at the highest levels of our government and the right kind of organization and the right kind of uh, approach. Hopefully, a different president after 2020 will put that in place and um, and we'll start to get a grip on this. You and I both know that there can be various policy priorities for any administration. But when the president lays hands on either someone or some issue, a message gets sent. And things that I'll get to when I get to become this is my top priority. And um, it is it is a very real phenomenon in government, I think. And it was, I think, despite the skepticism of you coming in on Ebola, one of the reasons that the response was so successful, because the president gave you the authority to tell people what to do. Well, I appreciate that the Ebola response was successful because of the first part of that, which is President Obama made a decision, a risky decision, a controversial decision to go all in on fighting a disease that was on the other side of the planet in three countries that many Americans had never heard of, and a decision to do some things that really were unprecedented. For example, the first ever deployment of the U.S. military in an infectious disease response, Operation United Assistance, where the president sent 3,000 troops, largely from the 101st in uh, Kentucky and Tennessee, uh, over to Liberia to provide the infrastructure and security for the response, and a decision to uh, go to Congress and get a uh, supplemental appropriation to fund a wide array of activities here in the U.S. and in West Africa to fight the disease and to be prepared for the possibility of cases coming over here to the United States. That kind of leadership uh, made a difference. It saved a lot of lives in West Africa. When President Obama launched that response, there were predictions that a million people in West Africa would die from Ebola. In the end, the death toll was 11,000. Um, and uh, that's, uh, that's obviously a very large difference than a million. And uh, you know, credit for that first and foremost goes to the people in West Africa themselves. They made hard choices. They did risky and dangerous things. Their healthcare workers lost a lot of lives in fighting this disease and turning around. But there's no question that local effort would not have succeeded as quickly or as dramatically if it hadn't been for the generosity of the American people and uh, being a part of that response and the leadership of President Obama in pulling that response together and deploying it. Well, we'd be absolutely remiss if we didn't then draw upon your political skills here in assessing the Democratic nomination process. I don't know if you're officially adopted into the Biden family, uh, but I, I think I know who you may vote for. But assess um, as a political observer, putting aside you know who's going to win or who should win, the field, the process, what should we be looking for as partisans in the Democratic Party? So, look, I'm all in with Vice President Biden. I've worked for him for 30 years. I've worked on his 1988 campaign. I worked on his 2008 campaign. And now I'm helping on his 2020 campaign. And so uh, I am a biased observer of this. A couple things. One, we've never seen a field this large. And, you know, there's no real precedent for this kind of thing. I mean, yes, theoretically, I guess 15, 16 people ran for the, on the Republican side. But, you know, the, the, the Democratic candidate right now in 20th or 21st or 22nd place are like outstanding, outstanding accomplished people here. Every time you look at these polls and look at all the people getting zeros, these are all like amazing and incredible people. How that plays out is really hard to know. Uh, that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is, again, I'm with Vice President Biden, but I think it's impressive and encouraging to see so many women running for president and candidates of color running for president. And it just highlights the difference between where the Democratic Party is today and where the Republican Party is today. Uh, even if Donald Trump weren't running, it's hard to imagine that a third of the Republicans would be women or candidates of color. They just had 18 freshmen elected to the Congress in 2018. Only one of their 18 was a woman. You know, the Democratic Party is just in a very different place than the Republican Party, and the field really illustrates that. We're going to have these debates starting in June and July. Uh, we're going to see this thing play out. Uh, I'm very hopeful and optimistic about the vice president's prospects. But uh, he's been through this twice before. I've been through this a number of times before. It is a long and rocky road from here to there, and we'll see what happens. 
Well, at the risk of um, blowing our uh, listeners' minds of your various skills, I'm going to add another one. Oh, thank you. Um, yes. um, Ron is the foremost expert in preparing Democratic presidential candidates for debates. Without question. By far. <laughs> I, I don't know if you were uh, – you did much in 96 with Clinton. Because I was busy getting Gore ready for the Kemp debate in 1996. Right. So, but in, I, I witnessed firsthand in 2004 with John Kerry, Ron taking over and running the – basically running the campaign for these three-day stretches before the debates. Let's accept the fact that uh, the vice president gets the nomination. What's a Biden-Trump debate going to be like? And what's the preparation? You know, what's the Ron Klain secret sauce here for Joe Biden? Well, first of all, I think we'll keep the secret sauce a secret. But what I'd say is, look, <laughs> let's go back to 2016 and, uh, and the Clinton-Trump debates. And uh, in which you, you I was ran Hillary's uh, along with Along with my colleague Karen Dunn. Karen yep. and I were in charge yep. of uh, Secretary Clinton's preparation. And what's really fascinating about those debates is uh, every poll shows that Secretary Clinton won all three debates. And indeed, neutral observers, people like Ezra Klein and Nate Silver, both wrote pieces afterwards that Clinton's performance in those debates was the most dominating debate performance we've ever seen. Nate Silver did elaborate statistical analysis, polling us so like no debates had ever had as big an impact, no debates had ever been as successful, so on and so forth. And yet I think when you look back on it, what Trump did was stick to a few basic themes and deliver them over and over and over again in a way that wasn't aimed at winning the debates but leaving a mark on her. Uh, his moment in the second debate where he said if he was president, he would put her in jail. Uh, his repeated calling her crooked. It was interesting. That debate was a struggle between one candidate winning the debates on the strength of her substantive knowledge, her persuasive argumentation, her uh, effective uh, uh, needling of him and getting him to blow up and do crazy things. His Five-day meltdown about Alicia Machado after the first debate, and and uh, and his all his crazy things he did in those debates. No, going after Daddy, going after you know, we, you know, Secretary Clinton. We very effectively kind of went after his inherited money, his the fact that he's not really that rich. All these things that really got under his skin and rattled him. But he left behind some very strong messages about her that I do think kind of stuck. One thing any Democrat is going to have to think about when they face Donald Trump in 2020 is not just can I beat him in this debate, but but what will people really take away from it? What will be kind of the, 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 the lingering thought in people's minds two days later, three days later, four days later, five days later? Um, how can I not just win on debate night but leave the same kind of mark on him that he's going to try to leave on his opponent? I think that's something that any Democrat who faces Donald Trump in 2020 really needs to think about. Well, you need to promise to come back after the third debate and we'll, we'll, you'll, you'll tell us then. Hopefully we'll know the secret sauce Yeah, uh, because if we don't, then maybe it didn't work. <laughs> yeah. right, let me finish up. This has been fascinating and great. You know, we've kind of spanned you know, everything from preparing candidates for a debate to the biggest public health crisis of, of the decade. Um, what what was your favorite thing that you did? What's the one thing that you you tell your kids you're the most proud of? Well, I think it is really working on the Ebola response in the fall and winter of 2014 and 2015, in part because the stakes were so high. Uh, you got up every day feeling like if we couldn't get something done that day, people were going to die in West Africa, in part because I really uh, got the chance to work with some amazing people. Uh, not just incredible policy people at the White House, but to meet people like Dr. Nancy Sullivan, who'd spent a decade working on a vaccine for Ebola, a disease that had really been uh, never taken more than a few hundred lives before. No one was really interested in her vaccine until all of a sudden everyone wanted her vaccine. And to hear her story and her work in, in bringing this vaccine from uh, her notebooks. We, one day, President Obama and I went out to NIH and met with her, and she showed us notebooks from 10, 12 years ago when she made the first discoveries that had led to her pioneering work with the vaccine, something she'd worked on for, for years, and just to kind of see that and get to know people like that and to get to meet so many of the of the really courageous people, Americans, who, as volunteers, 
uh, gave up uh, vacation days and time to go to West Africa to work in Ebola treatment units, to work in some of the community hospitals to try to make a difference and to fight this disease. Just every single day I met people who were incredibly heroic and amazing um, and unsung heroes in, in finding these things. And one group were the men and women um, of the U.S. Public Health Service, which is kind of this very little-known uniformed core of healthcare workers we have in the United States, largely their work now is on Native American reservations, but there are official public health service. There are frontline public health fighters, and uh, they agreed to be deployed to West Africa to staff the one hospital the U.S. built in West Africa, the Monrovian Medical Unit. And uh, they went, and the first group of them came back uh, the day before Christmas in 2014 after having served for uh, basically a month and a half over in West Africa. And a lot of their communities didn't want them to come back, and so we, uh, until they'd been through a um, kind of a, a quarantine period. And so we kept many of them here in Washington. And the day after Christmas, we brought them to the White House. And um, they were away from their families. Uh, they were away from their loved ones. Um, they were away from their homes uh, the day after Christmas. Uh, and as you know, Joe, the day after Christmas, a very quiet day at the White House, very few people around. And we brought them there and kind of gave them the run of the place. And, and uh, I just was so touched by the sacrifice and the service these men and women had made to help other people on the other side of the planet fight a deadly disease. And just the chance to work with people like that and know people like that really made it an unbelievable, uh, life-changing experience for me. It's an inspiring story, and um, we appreciate you sharing it. And I think, you know, my closing thought is for all of the people who are disillusioned in government and the people in government and what they do and how we do it, they need to spend more time with Ron Klain. Thank you. I second that. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. Very much. Thank you. So, Joe, we want to find out what else is on your mind today. You wrote a piece last week for CNN about the revisions in the White House press office procedure for getting a hard pass. I'd love you to talk about that and explain what it means. Yeah, it sounds like the most esoteric thing in the world. And trust me, when I was the press secretary, I hated dealing with these things. But there's this thing called a uh, White House uh, for reporters called a hard pass. And all that means is they're able to get into the White House grounds the same way a staffer is. They just go. They show the Secret Service. They go in. Uh, they don't have to get what what's called cleared in on a daily basis. Um, the White House um, – and when, when I was the press secretary, this was something that I just kind of played a, a neutral observer to. Secret Service handled the security part. They vetted the people for obvious reasons. Um, and the White House Correspondents Association kind of handled, well, what's the criteria of someone who deserves a hard pass? And I sat in the middle and only served as a, a moderator when there were disputes. When someone was denied and they, you know, the correspondents thought that they shouldn't be, I'd, I'd weigh in with the service and, and you know, the other way around. Uh, well, the White House uh, this week, it came, it came out through a Washington Post story by Dana Milbank has has pretty radically changed the criteria and made it much harder to get a hard pass. Now, why does this matter? When you're the in the White House press office, particularly as the press secretary, you're always fighting with somebody. There's always some story you think is unfair. And if you have the power to keep them on a daily basis from coming in because they've written a bad story that morning, that's a pretty big temptation. When I was there, I made sure that I didn't have this temptation. Would come in every day, whether they wrote a good story or a bad story, because I thought it was completely wrong for the White House to decide a political person, like the press secretary is, let's be honest, they're a political person, uh, to decide who gets to cover and who doesn't. And in the piece in CNN, you know, I told this this story. We there was a an old guy, I think he was a former priest uh, who worked for a small radio station in Baltimore, a guy named Lester Kinsolving. And Lester would come almost every day and he'd have his yellow legal pad and he'd have these long written out questions that it was really hard to tell. And it almost always came back to some dispute between the political parties and the Catholic Church. As I wrote, some days it was amusing. Some days it was really annoying and, and disruptive. And I remember one of my staff came up to me one day after a disruptive day and said, you know, we clear him in. He has to call and ask permission to come in. Why don't we just say no? The guy clearly is wasting people's time. And, you know, I immediately said, we can't do that. We start doing that. It's a slippery slope to all of a sudden, well, 
we don't really like what the Wall Street Journal editorial page writes. So maybe the Wall Street Journal reporters should be kept out and on and on. And it's a really dangerous place. Now, I will say on Less Skin Solving, what I did tell my staff was you you generally have to clear them in in advance. Um, And I said, clear them in in advance, except on rainy days. On rainy days, make him stand out there for about 10 minutes because if he's going to annoy me, I at least want him to get wet. (laughs) Um, And and by the way, Les went on to annoy future press secretaries of both parties. The reason this isn't esoteric is I think it's part of – there have been some overt moves by the White House to limit press freedom. Uh, Remember Donald Trump uh, famously told like five or six news organizations during the campaign they couldn't cover his events. The Washington Post could not go into a Trump event, uh, which is absurd. He's running for president of the United States. You can't just have Fox cover you. Well, again, not particularly subtle since he's been president. I think he's now nearing 100 interviews with Fox since he's been president, zero with CNN. And the last question, which I try to answer in this piece is, what does it matter? I mean, they don't do briefings. They don't and uh, I'm, I have to. I quote the great Helen Thomas to answer that question. Helen Thomas, a legendary White House reporter, used to be the first person to arrive. She'd get there before I did. I would walk in every morning, and she'd be sitting in that chair right outside the press secretary's office. I'd get her some coffee. We'd chat for a while, and she wouldn't move until after the 9.30 press gaggle was over. And I asked her one day, Helen, I love that you're here. It's nice to have someone to talk to at 6.30 in the morning, and, you know, the but the coffee's not that good. Why are you here? And she explained it to me. She said, I can sit here because I'm allowed to. I have access to the press secretary's office. And I can tell what kind of day it's going to be based on who comes in and out of your office and what's the the look on their face. And if you stop to talk to me and chit-chat with me, I know it's going to be a quiet day. If you blow by and say, hey, good morning, Helen, I got to run, I know something's up. And reporters... Uh, good reporters need to be there to see it. It's not enough to just watch it on TV. Another big story last week, Joe, was the blockbuster New York Times expose on Donald Trump, on his taxes, on his failure as a businessman. Talk a little bit about that story, why it's important, and what it means going forward. This is a really important story. And really important stories come in one of two forms. One is what I call explosions. Um, and explosions are like you see immediately, oh, my goodness, like they got him or it's just everything is right there for you to see with a nice bow on it. Uh, when he fired Jim Comey, that was an explosion. It, it only took two days to really get to the bottom of the whole thing. The New York Times story, along with the story they did last year that won a Pulitzer Prize, these are more like what I'd call an earthquake story where much, much of the damage is really done in the aftershocks. And what they've done here is uh, both – laid out a roadmap and a justification for Democrats to keep pushing for financial information. Uh, because I could see, you know, someone in middle America saying, well, you know, why do the Democrats need to see his taxes? Why is it important that these things that we can keep private, why shouldn't the president be able to keep it private? This story gives a huge justification for why you need to look in there because it raises questions. It doesn't answer them. Trump, by almost any definition, was a terrible businessman whose father bailed him out for a very long time. When his father passed, somebody else started bailing him out because he didn't all of a sudden wake up and say, oh, my goodness, I'm now uh, I'm now Warren Buffett. Who was bailing him out? Where was that money coming from? Uh, and there's a lot of questions in here. So that's one piece of it. On another political level, it goes at his brand. We overuse the word crisis. Uh, the best example I, I, I always give is if there's really bad weather or a computer problem and Delta Airlines um, cancels 3,000 flights, that's a bad story. It's not a crisis. A Delta Airlines plane goes down uh, and crashes, it's a crisis. Why? Because the brand, most important brand quality for an airline is safety. With Trump, it seems to me when he was running for president, his one of the most important brand attributes he had was he was so successful as a businessman that everything he touched turned to gold. That he could do that for the country. And as he turns to run again for reelection, we now see that he's more con man than, you know, Warren Buffett or uh, Rockefeller. And I think that's going to create uh, problems for him. So I think this is a problem on multiple levels. And we're going to feel aftershocks from this story from now until Election Day. 
And finally, Joe, last week at a rally in Florida, we listened to Donald Trump say the following. How do you stop these people? You can't. There's no. That's only in the panhandle you can get away with that statement. We've all watched Donald Trump over the last three years. And just when you think that he couldn't be more outrageous, that he couldn't say anything worse, we, we listen to that. Talk about how important it is coming from a president of the United States you in know, that situation. As a rule, your head shouldn't explode more than once a week. And when I saw Ken Starr on Fox News talking about how Bob Mueller had put too much detail in and it was prosecutorial overkill, my head exploded. So I was still trying to put my head back together uh, for uh, his speech on the panhandle. It, it tells you everything you need to know about Trump. On a day where there's a school shooting uh, where uh, in Colorado, not far from Columbine, a place where probably two – I think two or three weeks ago – Entire school system was shut down near the on the anniversary of Columbine because there was a, a, a threat of another. A, the most sensitive thing in our society right now is the fact that our kids are afraid to go to school because they're afraid they're going to get shot. And Donald Trump at a rally starts implying that if he could, he'd love to keep immigrants from coming into this country uh, by shooting them. And he says, we just can't do that. And he said it with some sort of resignation. And someone in the crowd yells out, shoot them. You know, we all know the moment where in a campaign event, somebody uh, yelled to John McCain, you know, Barack Obama's a Muslim. And what John McCain has said, stop there. Stop right now. He was, he's an American. He's a patriot. And he's a good man. That's what leaders do. What Donald Trump did was he laughed. He laughed and he said, oh, well, you can get away with that only in the panhandle of Florida. And he made light of it. And there are parents uh, grieving the loss of their son that night. There are hundreds of parents in that school district who are thinking about, I can't send my kids to school anymore. And around the country, parents are, a little piece of them is grieving every time we have one of these. And Donald Trump thinks it's funny. To your point, Joe, the White House the next day and what they always do when Donald Trump says something offensive and outrageous, they said, it's a joke. It's not funny. And um, I got asked recently what was the hardest thing that I ever had to do at the White House. And I didn't have to think very hard. Uh, the day of the Columbine shooting, um, I remember it being uh, the late afternoon and the president was uh, scheduled to go do something where he'd be in front of reporters. And I saw the reports and I got called the Justice Department uh, public affairs guy and asked him, you know, what do you know about this? And he filled me in. John Podesta was out of the building. So I went in by myself and I, I just distinctly remember this. It was a kind of overcast, rainy day. And I went in and I said, you know, Mr. President, I don't know how to say this, but someone just went into a high school and uh, – Colorado, and we think has killed about 30 kids. And the look on his face, I, I will never forget it, the, the pain on his face of like, how could this happen? And it was, it was, it went from disbelief, like this can't be true. Once again, you're relaying to me some media report. And he said, well, where are you getting this from? And I said, I talked to justice who's coordinating with FBI and the attorney general, all that. And the look of disbelief went to a look of pain. Um, and one of the um, one of the hard jobs that the press secretary has um, when they choose to do their job as opposed to just laugh everything off is the president went to Columbine and he spoke in public and I think he gave a very moving speech. But what he did there and too many other places was he would go into a room where all the families were sitting and they were all separated and he'd go family to family. And it was the most gut-wrenching thing I have ever experienced. And I was just observing. I was there just to record, and I never revealed the, any of it, but just to record what happened if something came up. If, you know, if somebody confronted the president about something or said something particularly moving, just to be able to say to the press, if people talk, yes, that did happen. President Bush did it. Famously in public, September, you know, at Ground Zero. September 14th at the yeah. Javits Center. Yeah, it's famously there, but privately, many places. President Obama did it. President Obama was driven to tears uh, in the briefing room. And it just shows the chasm 
between what we want in a president, what we need in a president, and what Donald Trump just doesn't have. It's one thing to lack empathy. It's something else to cover it up by making a joke of it and trying to find some political advantage to someone else's pain. You don't think he can go lower, but he finds a way. On that happy note, Joe, thank you, and we'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers. Thank you.